Hey guys, my name is Alex, and you're listening to the Thousand Movie Project podcast. This is going to be an outlier of an episode, a particularly indulgent one, which is why it's the first of two episodes that'll be released on the same day, with that second episode coming up close on the heels of this one. And the reason I'm doing that is because I've noticed a few people seem to be discovering the podcast every week, and my impression of how people approach it is they see, they listen to whatever was the most recent episode. And on the basis of that episode, they determine whether or not this is something they would like to listen to in the future, whether they dig this structure or this subject matter. And because to this particular episode won't really keep with like the the structure or the there is no real subject matter to this podcast. The fact that it's such a personal indulgent outlier, I just don't want it sitting there at the top of the list as you know the most recent episode for seven days i don't i don't want to run the run the risk of somebody stumbling upon this episode and thinking oh the rest are just like this why would anyone listen because this episode is kind of just a life up i was gonna say a life update but it's not really a life update i talk about my life in all the other episodes this one is really just concentrated on various positions which is the novel that I finished and started sending out to agents about a month ago. Since finishing the book and sending it out, I have jumped into a bunch of other things. I've gotten back into blogging, podcasting, I finished another fiction project that I'm going to self-publish in October. I'm trying to keep myself busy, trying to keep the book out of my head so that I'm not just constantly refreshing my email to see if any agents have gotten back to me. That being said, Various Positions is still always on the tip of my tongue. I always want to talk about it, most vent about it, but there are obstacles in my way. There are issues with doing that. And so with today's episode, I'm going to explain what those obstacles are, and then, God willing, I'm going to ignore those obstacles and just talk to you in earnest about what's going on with the book and where my head is in respect to it. Before we talk about what's going on with my book, and before talking about why it's so hard to talk about what's going on with my book, I want to tell you, because I promise it's relevant, my three rules for being decent at podcasting. The first rule I've tried to internalize is this. Nobody owes me their time. If I want your attention, my task is to earn it. If I'm going to put something out there and I want people to show up and pay attention, I've got to focus on what makes for a good experience rather than just what edifies me as a creator. So one of the things I do in order to, uh, to make it cater to your time is that I edit the episodes pretty carefully. I, I try to keep them all less than an hour long. And I also like to break each episode up into several segments rather than one sprawling monologue or one long unpunctuated conversation. Every segment break in the episode is supposed to be like an invitation to a breather, an opportunity for you to seamlessly pause the show, switch to something else, come back to it later, whatever you want. So that's the first thing I try to keep in mind, is that nobody owes me their time. I have to hold their attention by saying what I have to say as quickly and clearly and in as entertaining a fashion as possible. Now here's the second of my three creative rules. If you're going to embark on a big project, like a weekly podcast, or like watching a thousand movies and writing a response to each one, or writing a novel, or painting a series, or recording an album, whatever it is, you have to make sure that you're doing it in a way that is legitimately enjoyable. Otherwise, no matter how avid or encouraging your audience is, their praise alone is not going to keep you in line. It isn't going to fuel you towards brainstorming, scripting, recording, and editing an episode. 
If once a week, for three weeks, you do a podcast episode about horses, and it quickly becomes the most popular horse show on the internet, that popularity alone will not motivate you to make consistent episodes if you yourself don't care about horses. So these are the first two rules for doing creative shit. Creative rule number one, nobody owes you their attention, and their time is valuable, so you need to say whatever it is you want to say in as quick and entertaining a manner as possible. Creative rule number two, if you don't tweak your process to the point that it is immediately enjoyable, like in-the-moment type fun, then that creative process will be unsustainable. And here's my third rule for big creative projects, and it might be the most crucial one. And just for our purposes here, let's say that the big creative project we're talking about is a podcast. A podcast that takes about 10 hours per episode to produce. A critical way of making sure that you get your podcast out on time every week is if you turn the act of podcasting into a necessary means of personal expression. In other words, there are things I feel I can say into a microphone at 5 a.m., which incidentally is when I tend to record these episodes, and I'm sitting in the dark at my desk, and I'm looking at the skyline of downtown Miami through my window. When the world is quiet, and it's just me in the dark with a microphone, I feel I can say things that I can't generally confide in other people. And not because the people in my life aren't good listeners. Quick digression, though. And then we're going to come back to point number three, but first I have to clarify one thing. It's not that my friends and family aren't good listeners, and whenever I've been in some moment of crisis and really needed to bend somebody's ear, they've shown that they're more than happy to spare the time. What I can never really lose sight of, though, is the fact that right now, more than ever, it seems a little inconsiderate to go up to somebody like, hey, can you listen to my problems for a little bit? Because everybody has problems, more problems than usual. People are out of work, or they don't have enough work, uh, they're having a hard time paying rent, or they're going stir-crazy in the house, or they're scared for their health, or the health of a loved one. And so it seems a little inconsiderate to go up to anyone right now, when the whole country has its own unprecedented plate full of problems, and say to them, Hey, I'm a little bummed about something. Would you mind setting aside an evening where we can talk exclusively about me? That's one of the, that's, that's one of the obstacles that's making it kind of difficult to confide in people. But the other problem that comes up whenever I try talking about the problems I'm having with getting my book published, the bigger problem, is that by discussing this huge book I've written, this thing into which I poured so much of myself and whose doomed fate is tormenting me, I know that I'm creating a, a sudden cloud over, over my confidant's head where, the, I, where I know that they suddenly feel like they have to offer to read the book, like it is their duty as someone who cares about me to read my book. There, there's this formula I've quoted a million times at this point. I, I'm not sure if I've done it on the podcast yet, but I think I learned it from Jane Smiley's book, um, 13 Ways of Looking at the Novel. She says that the average literate American adult reads at a rate of roughly 30 pages an hour, and the average American book is about 300 pages. So it takes the average American reader about 10 hours to finish the average American book. And it doesn't matter how close you and I are. I don't think it's appropriate for me to ask of anyone that they give me 10 hours of their time in order to read this book that I wrote, and then a little more time so that you can talk to me about it and let me know what you think. Also, even if you were down for it, I'm going to find a way of discrediting your judgment. If you tell me that the book sucks, I'm going to tell myself that you weren't picking up on some of its finer points. And if you tell me that the book's amazing, I'm going to tell myself that you weren't picking up on some of its, you know, bigger flaws. Or else, worst of all, someone will press me and press me and press me about how badly they want to read the book. Can I please, please, please give them a copy? And so I do it. I give them the whole manuscript. And this has never happened before, incidentally. But what has happened, and it's happened only twice because I thought it was more reasonable, is that somebody pressed me and pressed me for a chance to read, read a book that I wrote, and my concession was that I gave them the first hundred pages. But so this is what ended up happening. The friend wanted 
to support me. They wanted to know what I was working on. But once these hundred pages of amateur fiction are sitting on their desk, they realize that this is no small task. This is like three and a half hours of work. And what happens is they put it off and it just becomes this like towering obligation that's looming over them. The more time that passes, the more forbidding a task it seems. And so what then ends up happening is, you know, a week goes by and I ask them if they want to go join me for a beer. But I can tell that they're afraid I will mention the hundred page sample that they still haven't gotten around to and they feel guilty for having not read it. And so they take a rain check for next week, figuring that they'll get to this 100-page section over the weekend. But then a week goes by. They were busy. They didn't get around to reading it. And now it's Friday again. I ask if they want to get a drink, and again. They feel guilty that they haven't read my bullshit, so they say no. They take another rain check, telling themselves that they will get around to it this weekend. But they don't. Until eventually, they've cancelled plans so often that we just stop making plans. And then, just because of the tension surrounding what they now feel is their fraternal obligation to read these fucking hundred pages, we just kind of fall out of touch. Which is why, incidentally, 99 times out of 100, if you ask to read my book, I'll say no. But if I say yes, and I give you either 100 pages of it, or 20 pages of it, or I give you the whole thing, I promise, you have my sworn blood oath that I will never ask you what you thought. I will never ask if you got around to it. If you bring it up to me, cool. We can talk about it to some extent. Although even with people who have read my shit, I don't feel all that comfortable discussing it because it feels weird. I feel like a putz talking about my made-up characters and their made-up situations. But anyway, yeah, I'd never, I would never follow up to ask a friend if they've read it yet, because I know what life is like, and I know what a task it is to read a huge amount of writing as a favor to somebody else. I've had friends point me in the direction of their 28-minute debut album, something they'd been working on for a year and a half, and I, and I never got around to listening to fucking 28 minutes of music. I could do that while driving to work, but I don't. There is something forbidding about, you know, a piece of art that makes it difficult to consume if you know that you are somehow obliged, not only to digest it, but to cultivate, you know, critical ideas about it that you can then relay back to the creator. But look, if I do give you pages to read, and you don't read them, it creates a new obstacle for me in our friendship because I know that you have a huge sample of my book back in your apartment, and we're both tiptoeing around the fact that you haven't read it. And it doesn't bother me that you haven't read it, but if you have a 100-page sample of a book that I am now marketing to agents, and I'm getting a bunch of rejections, and I'm feeling really bad about all the rejections, I'm not going to bring it up to you because I know you're going to feel bad that even you haven't gotten around to reading it. Another thing about trying to discuss this book situation with people is that there's never been, there has never been, I've never had good news. I've only had hopeful news. Like, for instance, the fact that the first person I queried for, for various positions she sent me a message 24 hours later saying that she was very excited by, by the sample that I had sent to her and she liked it a lot and she would like to see the, the entire manuscript, which had never happened to me before. And I thought it was really promising and I, I, would, I went and I told people, but I, I, was, I was careful to like hedge my bets, to not get too excited, to just bask in the compliment of her having requested the full manuscript to begin with. Because the higher you get with excitement, the farther you fall when the disappointment ultimately comes. And this week, surely enough, I got a rejection from the agent who had requested the full manuscript. So, okay, remember a few minutes ago, I was talking about those three big rules I have for doing big creative projects. And I said that the third one, the most important one, was to make your art into an indispensable and unique platform for personal expression. Well, this is what I mean by it. Your big project needs to give you something vital that you cannot go and get in your daily life. 
and what I get from this experience, podcasting, when I'm alone at my desk in a quiet room at 5am in front of a microphone, is the freedom to speak about things without having to untangle the crazy matrix of social niceties and precautions and whatever. Like, I want to, like, if, for instance, I, I, I want to complain about, you know, all these rejections I'm getting for the book, when I'm talking into the mic, I, it's not another person, so I don't have to think like, oh, she's gonna think that she has to offer to read my book, or... You know, she has my book back at her apartment and she's now super embarrassed and this conversation is an extremely unpleasant situation for her. There's none of that. I speak into the mic and I know that you're hearing me, but you're hearing me at your leisure and only because you want to and you're pausing whenever you feel like it and you can just turn it off and never return to it after 10 minutes. And if you are a friend of mine who has the manuscript at your place and you haven't gotten around to it, you can just pretend you never heard this. Um... There's there's no there's no tension. There's when it's just me and the microphone and the skyline outside my window, an hour and a half before the first light of dawn, I can just talk freely. I'm not bending myself out of shape trying to read somebody's face or the shape of their shoulders to see if they're getting bored or impatient or whatever. But anyway, all that being said, here's the situation with various positions. It's not doing very well. As I said, this week I got a rejection from the agent I was really holding out hope for, the one who had asked for the full manuscript. And here's the thing, if you, if you want a deal with a traditional publishing house, you need an agent. Publishers do not negotiate with a writer because a writer cannot objectively argue the value of his or her own product. So you need an agent. When you reach out to an agent with a query letter, which is basically a pitch for your book, they need to be convinced that they can sell what you're pitching. So you need to argue that not only is your book timely and interesting and you yourself are equipped to be writing about it, you need to tell them about what is referred to as your platform. Do you have several thousand followers on social media? If so, you better mention it. Do you have a big YouTube channel or a podcast? If so, you better mention it. Because if an agent knows that you already have an audience, that people already know who you are and they'll be more inclined to buy your book, well, then they know that they've got a good bargaining chip when it comes to striking a deal with publishers. So I mentioned in all of my query letters that I have this podcast. And I mentioned some numbers about how many people listen, and so my thinking was that some of those agents might come around and start listening to the podcast to get a sense of whether it's competently done, if it's really the kind of thing that people might listen to. And so that's another reason why I didn't want to talk about the book here. I was convinced that maybe an agent would wander over and start listening to this. I have, I have now been firmly divested of that delusion. So far, for various positions, I've gotten a ton of form rejections, but I did also get one personalized rejection, which was very nice, and the guy said I had a good literary voice, but the subject matter just rubbed him the wrong way. What he said specifically is that anything having to do with the pandemic um, is a hard pass for him. In my and various positions, it doesn't have to do with the pandemic, but coincidentally, this book that I started writing in December is about a weird meteorological incident that makes everyone, that imposes a quarantine on Miami. But yeah, it was a bummer to get that guy's rejection, but I thought it was a really nice note for him to have left. He really didn't have to take the time to to write that note, but he did, and it buoyed my spirits a little, and I, I was very grateful. And then apart from him, there's one other agent who um, responded favorably to the query, and she requested a partial manuscript. Um, and But apart from that, it's just agents looking at the query and whatever sort of sample they requested, whether it was 5 or 10 or 20 pages. And uh, yeah... Frankly, I'm just bummed and discouraged. I know that this handful of rejections doesn't mean that I'm, like, never going to make it, uh, and it doesn't mean that the book is bad. What it does mean, though, is that in a few months, I will be 30 years old, and the best-case scenario for my professional situation when I turn 30 is that I'm not a busboy, I'm a waiter. 
or a bartender. And I love the hospitality profession, my novel is mostly about the hospitality profession, but it's not what I want to do with my life. And what feels like a more pointed bummer is that ever since I was in high school, um, I mean, I've been, I've been writing since I was in third grade, but um, ever since I was in high school, people would often tell, when, when people were starting to panic about where they're going to go for college and what are they going to major in, they st everyone started telling me how lucky I am that I know what it is I want to do with my life, to, to feel that I have a vocation. And I agree with them. I am lucky in that respect. But it also might prove to be a curse if the one thing that I want to do with my life, I'll never be good enough to do it. Because it's nice to have a vocation, yes, but if, but that vocation can be a curse if it's also the one thing that you cannot do. Now, a few Fridays ago, I was at Batch with Bob and Linda, and, and they're both lawyers, and I think Bob was walking me through some headache he's having at work, some complicated, tedious matter he's having to trudge through, and I was like, you know, and I, I was hearing him out, and I said, that, that sounds rough, and it sounds similar to what my roommate's got to deal with, because my roommate is an engineer, and most of his workday is a series of meetings. Meeting after meeting after meeting. Meetings that so proliferate throughout the week that they get in the way of productivity. Which means that, a week later, they're going to have to have a meeting about the fact that there are too many meetings. And so I started riffing to Bob and Linda about how I had gotten this this job offer from, from a Catholic school. And I was already lamenting what I was sure would be a soul-deadening amount of faculty bullshit that I would have to do meetings and whatever. And I was telling them, like, while considering whether or not I should take this job at the Catholic school, I was thinking, like... I don't want to live a professional life or I have to go through all of this tedious bureaucratic meetings and, and bullshit and whatever. And Bob, n not in a vindictive way at all, he was he he looked at me and he was like, well, who the fuck are you? And then we laughed about it because he's right. This is this is the way that it is. You are an adult now. You're you have to make these concessions. Bills need paying. And so you go off and you do the things that will allow you to pay those bills. And then, as Linda recently blew my mind by pointing out, there's this capitalist structure where if you're really drained and deadened by five consecutive eight hour days of mind fuckingly tedious office work. Well, when the weekend comes, you're going to be so spitefully exhausted that you're going to pursue expensive, impulsive, indulgent, ex escapist pastimes times, such as theme parks, movies, mini-golf, shopping sprees, binging at nightclubs and bars, throwing down $80 for a boozy brunch on Sunday. Which I guess is, uh, which I guess incidentally is why most bars and restaurants don't do happy hour on, on weekends, is because they know that everyone is so miser- so trying to recoup their happiness from their soul-deadening work week that they're gonna go out and they're gonna spend money anyways. But also, incidentally, while we're on the topic of, like, corporate misery, I went on a date about six months ago with a lawyer. She was 30 years old and she had just started at a new firm. And she said to me at one point on the date, no joke, every day for like my first month at this firm, I went into the bathroom and I cried. And I was like, what, were, were they hitting you? And she says, no, I was just so unhappy because there was so much work to do and nobody was ever satisfied. And she went on and on about what a miserable experience it was at this law firm. But she said that other lawyers would find her crying in the stalls and they all just immediately understood and commiserated. And they were like, yep, that's how things are in the beginning. And then they just left her to it, left her to her tears, knowing that this would run the course, that it was just this kind of like emotional puberty that every lawyer has to go through. And, and yes, there's something very adult and responsible and very face the facts about living that kind of life and just weathering the storm of professional discontent because you want to be able to afford a certain lifestyle. But I guess... I'm just this childish ideologue in saying that I would I would much rather spend the next five years of my life wiping tables and eating instant ramen and canned vegetables than crying in a public bathroom every morning because I hate my fucking job so much. And yet, 
to show you the other side of that coin, this lawyer in question, who I remember... This is the wrong place to bring it up, but I'll bring it up now. Her name was Jane, and Jane texted me before she got to the bar, and she told me that I would see her wearing a, a quote-unquote mustard yellow sweater. And then she showed up, and I was like, holy shit, that really is mustard yellow. And she was like, yeah, that's what I said. And I, and I told her, yeah, I just didn't think it would be so accurate. And I was kind of enchanted by that mustard yellow sweater. And the fact that I don't think I ever see anybody wearing a mustard yellow garment. Anyways, so we're, and Jane, this miserable lawyer and I were talking about how Jane used to weep in her office's bathroom every day. And, and, and that's a very miserable situation to be in. But the other side of the coin is she earns a lot of money. She's 30 years old and she just bought, she just purchased a house in Coral Gables, which incidentally is my dream. Not owning a house necessarily, but I want to live in Coral Gables, which is admittedly this kind of dull, white Cuban bougie enclave in Miami, but it's also somehow retained a vestige of that 1930s Miami vibe, which incidentally, I remember as a teenager walking through Borders, and there was a bunch of praise being lavished on some new novel that was set in the 1930s, and I was like, who the fuck wrote a book about the 1930s? That's such a boring decade. But, one of the effects of Thousand Movie Project is that I am now obsessed with the 1930s. Largely because it was the first golden age of American cinema. We had another one in the 1970s. And I think it's that I think it's exactly that howling goodness of 1930s American cinema that made me so crazy for like that general 1930s aesthetic. And I do think the Great Depression triggered a kind of nationwide humility that you see in the movies of the 1930s. And, and and this sounds so Republican, but there's there's something beautiful about how 1930s American cinema really doubles down on, like, the importance of integrity and family and love. It doubles down on the intangibles of life. Opulence and materialism are virtually never celebrated because nobody in the country could afford to be materialistic or opulent. A movie that celebrated ball gowns and baubles would make people feel bad. And yes, that you could look at like Fred Astaire, Ginger Rogers musicals, and they were pretty gallant and ornamented and whatever, but you know, you know what I mean. Also, I just bristled a moment ago at, at the thought of sounding like I was being a Republican. I am actually registered as a Republican. I am proud to say, however, that in my 11 years of voter voting eligibility, I've only ever pulled one Republican lever, and it was while voting for Kasich in the 2016 presidential Republican primary. Okay, but back to the very sad lawyer, Jane. Um, Another thing about Jane and her very capacious income, though, is that it allows her to donate a lot of money to causes... That she believes in. So yes, she talked about weeping in the bathroom for 30 days and 30 nights, but she also talked about how good she felt to be able to write a thousand dollar check for the Bernie Sanders campaign and just send it off, which was not a boastful remark. She was being totally humble and, and she talked about her very humble origins. It's just that we were deep in our cups and I had sort of coaxed her on and on into explaining why she chose to stay at this law firm through those 30 miserable days. So it isn't like she was just volunteering the fact that she makes a ton of money. She was sort of confiding it. So maybe I shouldn't be broadcasting it here, but anyway, my point is that I get it. It's important to her that she have a lot of money, that she be able to save money and to give money. And so this is the storm that she weathers in orders to be able to enjoy monetary freedom, security, whatever. Also, she's interested in law. She's good at lawyering and she's able to feel like she does good in the world because she also apparently saddles herself with more pro bono work than her firm requires. It's the deal she made and, and she sticks with it and... It's admirable. It's just also really fucking scary. So I don't know. I think the point here is just that I refuse to be satisfied. That being said, 
I am going to self-publish a little ebook on Amazon in the next few weeks in time for Halloween. Anyway, things are fine. That's, I, I just wanted to, you know, I have all this shit on my mind about the book and where it's going. And like, it's not a, it's not a huge calamitous deal, nor is it really all that much of a surprise because I've been through this several times with several books that I've written prior to this one. I just, you know, I have this platform and I figured I'd, I'd take advantage of the opportunity to sort of guiltlessly vent. And because it got me thinking about like, like what would become of this book if nothing, if no one was interested in representing it, if no agents were, I probably wouldn't self-publish it because it just seems a little, like a little much. But, you know, I decided like, you know, I'm, I, I've, I've added enough disclaimers at the front end of this episode to be like, if you're not like, this is, this is a super intimate episode or whatever. So I figured, fuck it. Let me go ahead and just read you something. And technically I've never, I haven't, except for like, there's a, there's like a, a 13 page sex scene toward the end. And like, I shared that with three people just to make sure I wasn't humiliating myself. But apart from that, that one isolated scene, which kind of had no context, this will be the first time I'm sharing any part of the book at all with anybody. So, um, thanks for listening, if you choose to do so. And thanks for letting me vent! Between recording that first part of the episode and uh, recording this part where I'm going to read something from the book, an agent reached out and asked for the first three chapters on the basis of the query, which is a little bit heartening, if not necessarily promising. We'll see what comes of it, if anything. But because she requested the first three chapters, which I'm realizing now only amount to like 15 pages, um, I isolated them in a Word document, and I'm just going to read from that. This first part, the first three pages, I feel like they're they're better read. I feel like they're better on the page than they'll be in your ear. Um, I don't know. It feels corny because it's like, oh, fuck, whatever. I'm going to do it. Okay. Imagine this. Men and women in suits visit the Marine Science Department at a Florida university with briefcases, decks, initiatives, non-disclosure agreements. They speak with scientists and the faculty, and afterward, the scientists leave the conversation and they either attend the day's classes with distant looks on their faces or cancel classes altogether. Days go by. The people in suits return with their briefcases, decks, initiatives, and the scientists again sit and they listen. They're talking for hours and food is ordered into the room, but not everyone touches it. The scientists leave the meeting to straighten their thoughts, and then later they get together at bars and over the phone to whisper about it amongst themselves. One speaks repeatedly of his need to prey on it. Days later, the scientists and the suited investors shake hands. There's a press release, group photos featuring the faculty and the department chair. Neither word nor sight of the suits appears in any article. There are headlines in small Florida-based news outlets. University Lab launches non-profit research fund. They call it Orange Freighter, as in Florida Grown. Donations small and large pour in from a hundred companies around the world. Most of these companies have little or no online footprint, except maybe a vague and brightly colored corporate homepage. Nine months and nine figures later, there's another spattering of headlines. Orange Freighter establishes first ocean floor laboratory. The scientists stand tall and straight-backed and determined for a photo, but few of them smile. The underwater laboratory is about the size and shape of a double-decker bus, south from Key West and a couple miles east of the Aquarius Reef. The base can house ten researchers at once. It's a hulking thing with four-foot robotic arms extending from either side. A miracle of innovation, born from a miracle of funding. But there's curiously little coverage about it. Just a few headlines here and there. An orange freighter website goes up. 
A well-produced and unassuming video is posted on that website to answer the question, what's this all about? Happy, benign corporate xylophone music introduces footage of fish. Over a soaring drone shot of the ocean, a narrator says something about breaking boundaries. A young Korean woman with a brilliant smile turns to the camera in close-up and says, Preservation! Cut to a black woman with gray hair and a soft smile in a vast aquarium in the background. Innovation! Footage of the base's algae-caked exterior, its eight robot arms probing gently at the silty ocean floor, schools of colorful fish wafting by, stringy bits of plant life softly undulant at the sides. The ocean around them is a darkening blue in every direction and then total darkness. The whole project seems as incredible as it does vague. It gives the vibe of something so huge and covert, the only place you could hide it is plain sight. Footage on the video of plain-clothed technicians conferring in the narrow halls of a laboratory, studying sample vials in close-up, deploying divers who give a thumbs-up to the camera. Nine-foot robotic arms caressing the ocean floor for science. And above it all, way up on the surface, just imagine, eight large buoys spaced so many meters apart, establishing a perfect circular perimeter around the laboratory way down below. And when night falls, look closely. A dim orange glow from each of those buoys. Wireless sensors with waterproof cameras. It's actual military tech, the stuff that protects naval vessels from small craft aggressors. All of this in the name of science. Down at the level of the Orange Freighter Laboratory, big robotic arms move with gentle grace as the fish pass like clouds. Night settles over the ocean's surface, and the eight blue buoys bob and plop, peaceful and endlessly moving, soft little lights blinking orange in the moon-blue dark. There are eight technicians on board Orange Freighter's laboratory in the last week of November, when one of the lab's eight robotic arms goes stiff. Each arm costs close to a million dollars, and each arm protects itself. When jostled abruptly, the whole thing locks up. Technicians are alerted by beeps and trills around the lab. They fumble over control panels and fuck with joysticks. They're focusing on screens, buttons. Nobody's looking out the window. Cameras in subtle spots around the workplace watch them as they study, inquire, scramble. The whole base wrenches as a robotic arm is torn from the laboratory's side, and biologists and technicians are thrown about one against the other, eye lines averted from the screen so that they're looking, some of them, out the windows, and they go quiet when they do. Thin strips of rubber and plastic tubing float to the ocean surface, then more a few minutes later, then more. Then the cap of a pen pops briefly over the surf, rocketed up by a small bit of air trapped inside. Sodden papers folded and smushed in the plop of the tide turn up matted with human hair. The surface of the ocean is calm that night, and down below, the ocean floor is dark again. And the buoys, meanwhile, with their blinking orange sensors go on bobbing, somnolent, lazy. There are eight of them when the lab goes offline. In the morning, there are seven. <laughs>